Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage program will explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome as our guest, Bruce Malday. Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you for coming on. Arch, thank you very much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to uh, having the time to talk to you about our American heritage. And I think today maybe we'll talk a little bit about Lafayette before we sign off. And just to let uh, people know, I'm an author and a former newspaper reporter. And um, I've written a number of books on American history, including four on the Civil War, three of them dealing with Gettysburg, and two on the American Revolution Battle of Brandywine, which is a very much underreported and underappreciated battle in American history. And Bruce, I'd like our listeners to know that over the years, I have come and listened to several of your lectures and watched you interact with people. And at the reenactment at Brandywine this past September, I watched your tent being inundated with people coming to talk to you. And one of the things, Bruce, that has always impressed me about you is not only your balance of writing American history, but you are a consummate gentleman. I have always seen you be very kind and very nice and gently and respectful to people that have been pulling at you for your time. So. It's a wonderful thing to see because we know that sometimes people can be a little bit short or a bit curt with people, particularly after a long period of time. And I have watched one of the things, many things that I've respected about you is just seeing your demeanor and how you deal with people, particularly when after one of your lectures that you were inundated with questions and people wanting your autograph for your books or whatever. So to me, that's a wonderful trait to have, Bruce, and, and you have it. So I want to thank you for that. Arch, thank you so much for that. That's a great compliment. You know, I, I've always believed we, we need to treat each other more respectfully and, and we'll have, you know, things on their mind they want to say and they, they should be heard. That actually, when I was a newspaper reporter and then became a um, assistant editor, one of my editors told me, you know, you're going to be busy, but you know, this reporter is going to come up with a million questions, and it just you just need to listen to them for a minute and respond. And you know everybody deserves to be heard. So um, and they came to a lot of those people that came to my talks and the signings. You know they traveled a distance, and so I I appreciate them taking an interest in me. Well, and listeners, uh, Bruce, is it twenty books now that you have written? Is 20, um, 20, 23 actually under my name. I've helped other people write books. And, I, you know, I've been doing this so long. Um, at one point, I, somebody gave me gave a rundown as an introduction. And I said, boy, that makes me sound old. And somebody in the audience says, you are. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've been at this for a while. Actually, the first time I was paid, uh, I was paid by a daily newspaper in Coatesville and I was reading high school sports when I was 17 years old and I've really never stopped since then. And what spur your interest on to begin to write and to write books on American history? Oh, it's a great question and I know pretty much exactly where uh, I started. I was uh, 12, 13 years old and my grandmother gave me uh, newspaper articles, uh, the real deal, the, the clippings from the Civil War. And they were written by my great-great-great-grandfather, who was in the 61st New York Volunteers, and his brother fought at Gettysburg and was wounded there. And uh, I think that sparked my interest in American history and writing and newspapers. And, and um, yeah, I know exactly where it started. That's, uh, that was the spark. And listeners, I remember several years ago, 
And if you want to mention this later on, your book on Richie Ashburn and why the hall not. That was the first book, the first book that I ever read of yours. Richie Ashburn, Richie Ashburn was and always will be my favorite Philly. So that's what first opened me up to you as an author and, and continuing to read all of your books to this point. Arch, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That was like going back to my childhood. And I tell people, and it's true, that the books actually tell me to write them as much as I go out with the subject in mind. I actually got to see Richie play back at the old Connie Mac Stadium mm-hmm. uh, several times. And, you know, and I heard him with Harry Callis over all those years, oh. those two teams as announcers. They were the best announcers ever any time. I'm convinced of it. And, um, you know, the, one day I was given tickets, uh, it was a raffle or somebody, and it was, you know, I didn't pick the seats or the game or the time, and it was an afternoon game against Boston Red Sox, and went down to Citizens Bank Park early to catch the batting practice, and there was this usher there, and it was his first year as his retirement job. He was just gushing about baseball and how much he enjoyed it, and it was great listening to him. And at the end, he said, what do you do, Bruce? And I said, I write books. And he said, I have a book. And a lot of people tell me that, but he actually had a book and he ended up to be the uh, person who ran or had the whole idea and carried through the why the Hall not campaign for Richie when it looked like Ashburn was not going to get into the Hall mm-hmm. of Fame. And it's just a wonderful story about Richie treating this fan right when the fan was a kid. And then later on, the fan helps Richie and becomes personal friends and you know, collected all these signatures on a petition to get Richie into Cooperstown and delivering with Cooperstown. And um, Richie, when he finally did get into the Hall of Fame, he invited the usher up to Cooperstown wow. to be his his guest. And it's just a wonderful, a wonderful story. Yeah, I, I remember, and because I'll talk baseball, Bruce, forever, and I apologize for that. One of Richie's... No problem. I, I like baseball. I'll talk baseball history, whatever you true crime. Um, One of Richie's famous, famous lines t- talking with Harry when when the other team was scoring a lot of runs or getting a lot of hits or a pitcher would come in that was very, very wild, he would say to Harry, well, Harry, it's time to get the married men off the field. <laughs> <laughs> Richie had so many great uh, oh. yes, <laughs> he great did. lines, and, and you know, there's, there's a couple of the stories I got to recount in, in the book, and Chris Wheeler actually helped me get some of the Philly stuff, and I went to Cooperstown to uh, look at all the information that they had on Richie, and that was a treasure trove. Yeah. And I talked with uh, one of Richie's children for the book, and it, it was just a great book to, to yeah. put together and work on. It was fun. Absolutely. Uh, a lot more fun than that last one that just came out. As I was finishing up my book on Lafayette, I had a call from uh, one of my publishers, uh, Schiffer Books out in Akron, Pennsylvania. And the editor said, do you ever think about doing a book on the murders of the two Kenneth Square policemen? And I actually had because I would. Uh, this book completes a trilogy of true crime books that I did on the Johnston gang. And um, so I, I got into it and where Richie Ashburn was fun, you know, t- talking with the children of the slain policemen and the community and how that awful crime affected everybody. Uh, that was not as much fun, but it was a book that needed to be written because it really, I think, marks the time in history when small towns lost their innocence, mm-hmm. when two policemen can be killed in the middle of the night getting out of their police car. Um, and it's a tragic story, but again, it was a story that really needed to be told. 
And Bruce, what is the process that you go through in your research for your books? And Mike, the reason I'm asking that question is because, you know, we as historians, we live in a world where a lot of people don't live. And the research that you do and your books that I have read, you put it on a level that the average American that doesn't have a great depth of American history can relate and, and understand it and come away with a tremendous amount of knowledge. How do you go through that process as you were researching for your books? Well, there's several parts to that. First, people tell me I'm a storyteller, and I, I get that from being a newspaper reporter and you know, spending 20 years covering courthouse and writing features and business and different things. So I keep it in mind, you know, is that reader going to understand what I'm saying? Because after all, that's the goal of a book is to impart a story and knowledge. And of course, I want to make sure it's accurate because there's plenty of people out there that would jump on me if I want to, if I've got something wrong. So I want it to be accurate, but it's books that I like to read. There's some academic historians that I'll read about that chapter and set it down because it's, mm -hmm. you know they, they send you all over the world and they give you all this and they never get back to the subject. You know, it takes them 200 pages to get back to what the title's about. And you know, that's not me. I, you know, I want I have a story to tell. I, I think it's at least it's for me, you know, kind of exciting and interesting because I won't start a book unless I'm interested in the subject. Because I know some of my books, the first one I did on the Battle of Brandywine took about six years to research, write, work with the publisher before it got you know, printed. So I'm going to be with it for a long time. And then I'm still out talking about the Battle of Brandywine and that has led to the Lafayette book. So, you know, I, I need to like and love the subject and I do the research and I, I take it as um, it's, it's almost figuring out what happened, not taking anything on the surface, questioning what's going on. When I did the Battle of the Brandywine book, uh, I was down at the state park and they were telling people that uh, John Marshall, future Supreme Court of the United States, fought at Brandywine was wounded. And I thought, wow, what a great place to start. So I actually came across copies of the writings that Marshall wrote about being at Brandywine. He was there. He didn't write much. He wasn't really impressed with the American officers, but he was there. But he never wrote about being wounded. And I'm thinking, you know, when he's Supreme Court justice, can he tell mm -hmm. the weather? Sure. Because the arm, the leg. And I looked all over, and I was having trouble verifying he was wounded. I went to John Marshall's School of Law and some Marshall scholars, nothing, but they were adamant down at the park that he was wounded. And one day I was at a historical society, actually, the Chester County Historical Society, and came across a uh, diary by John McMichael, a uh, Pennsylvania member of Washington's army. And in his diary, he said, on the morning of September 11th, 1777, that's the date of the battle, my captain John Marshall was wounded. And that's where it came from. Hmm. But again, it still didn't make any sense to me. Why didn't Marshall write about it? So, uh, and, and some somebody obviously had seen this diary entry and it automatically assumed it was the future Supreme Court justice. But I kept after it and finally went to Harrisburg and found a roster of McMichael's unit. And his captain indeed was John Marshall, but it was a Pennsylvania John Marshall and not the Virginia John Marshall oh. that was wounded. So two John Marshalls, same battles, same portion of the battlefield, 
And, uh, but, you know, that's a mistake you, you, know, you, you can make, but it just didn't make any sense. So mm-hmm. when I do it, I try to research it. Um, I, as I mentioned, I did the book on Lafayette, and I was finding things that I wasn't quite sure of in my research and wound up a really good connection with American Friends of Lafayette. It's a great organization, some great people, and they have scholars that are really knowledgeable about just about any section of Lafayette's life. So um, I think the first issue I came up with was uh, I wanted to backtrack and do a little bit of his history. And Lafayette's father was killed by the British during the Seven Years' War. And I got two different dates on the day he died around the same battle. Um, and I called them and they hooked me up with a scholar who had uh, some papers from the French government with pensions and had the date that kind of cleared it up. So, you know, it, it's taken a look and recognizing and trying to get it straight in my mind before I get it straight in anybody else's. And if there's an issue that comes up that I need to write about, and I'm not 100% sure, I tell the readers, hey, look, this is what I have, but, you know, it's not definitive. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, and I try to write with the readers right there in mind. When I talk on my Lafayette book, I say, you know, I get a hold of as many of the original papers that I can get, the source documents and even though I, I love most of the time reading some of the papers that were written back in the 1700s, mm-hmm. sometimes they're pretty hard to follow for a modern reader, including myself, and making sure that it, you, know, you don't want to lose readers giving long quotes. And in the Lafayette book, I, um, you know, I use sections from those letters and reports and not long descriptions or long portions of them, except one letter that Lafayette wrote back to his wife when he departed to come to America. And I, I just thought that it was so endearing and gave a lot about you know, Lafayette's character at 19 years old that uh, included a large portion. But you know, again, you, you get the research, you try to verify the information as much as you can. You're honest with the reader. You don't overinterpret it. Or, you know, it also drives me nuts with some authors, I won't call them historians, that will want to write a book about something and then they will twist facts to make it look new or something and mm-hmm. it doesn't really warrant it you know i, I absolutely don't want to do that um so it, it's again it's being true to the reader and what was your it's the wrong word but it's what was your draw to lafayette at, at brandywine and to do all the research and write this wonderful book about this as you call the international champion yeah, and again, yeah, Lafayette told me to do that, and I'm, I'm not really kidding about that. Um, I did my book on the Battle of the Brandywine. It was the first one that was done, and it was 20 years ago. And I just, yeah, there was no book on the Battle of the Brandywine, the largest land battle that Philadelphia was doomed after the loss. Of course, he almost lost his life in the whole you know, army there at Brandywine. So that was like six years and a trip to London to get the British Army records, and I went to the public records office over there. And I had you know, Lafayette there, he was mentioned, but I, I didn't do a lot on him. And uh, I was asking people, what was the best thing about Brandywine and this American defeat? And they were telling me about the Americans, you know, standing toe to toe with the British for a couple hours late in the day and taking that knowledge back to them, made them better soldiers than going on to defeat the British. And I'm thinking, okay, but not really okay. And, you know, I, I included that in my book, but it just never really rung true with me. And I'm thinking, it must have been something else that Brandywine was really even more important. And, yeah, I tell you, it was like the name Lafayette just keeps popping off. 
in my mind over and over again. So I started looking at Lafayette. And the more I looked at it and kind of backed up a little bit before the Battle of Brandywine, where Washington pretty much gave orders to Congress to send back home any European generals that showed up and that, that included Lafayette and how he persevered and what he did to help win our freedom. Uh, we couldn't have defeated the British without the French help, especially the French, the French Navy. And we wouldn't have had the French assistance without Lafayette. So he was really, you know, that very key part of winning our freedom. And um, he's underreported, he's underappreciated at the moment. At the time he was, and people, we gave him 13 months almost of daily parades and dinners and reviews in 1824 and 1825 to thank him for what he did for our freedom. And, and so the more I got into it and I realized what a you know, great hero he was and how he ought to be really admired. He stuck to his guns and his principles all the way through his life, which caused him several years in jail during the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And um, then when you look, where did, it, where did he really start becoming the American hero and proving that he was more than just a rich kid playing general from you know, Europe? And it was a Brandywine one. He got down off of his horse and tried to stop a retreat and was shot through the legs. So he spilled his blood. And then, you know, that was the starting point. So that's how the book really started to shape up. As you mentioned, this young man was 19, close to 20 years old at Brandywine. He had just, just turned 20 just turned, five days before the uh, battle. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm way too old, Bruce, to remember when I was 20 years old, but I know where <laughs> I certainly wouldn't be there for my 20th birthday. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, that's what? funny because I, I start that you know, a lot. You know, when I start my you know, talking a lot, yeah, I tell everybody, a lot. Everybody remembers back to their 19. And you're the, one of the richest people in France, and you get this idea, go to this foreign land where you don't speak the language, and they have this idea of freedom, which you really don't know about because the king tells you about everything to do. Do you leave your young family to fire the king and, and make that trip or not? And, you know, I don't think many people would. No. And to think that he literally had to sneak out of France to get, to come. Um, oh, <laughs> share with our second thoughts a little bit when the king sent his troops to bring him back, but he uh, he said, "Nope, we're going to go through it." And he bought his own ship to get here. Mm-hmm. He, he, he put his wealth on the line and everything. But Bruce, what did General Washington see in Lafayette that created that bond between the two of them over the years? You know, early on, like I said, the Washington was fed up with European officers that cost a lot of money and didn't speak the language and disrupted his uh, system of you know, generals uh, and seniority. But um, it, Congress talked him into it. Ben Franklin said, look, you know, here's a guy. We need Francis' help. He's well-liked in France, and he's got money. You know, let him come into the Army. And Washington at first thought that he'd just be sort of an honorary commission, but Lafayette, right from the first moment, says, where's my troops? I'm fighting. And I think... Lafayette was such a likable, he made friends pretty easily. He was very smart, very astute for his age. And um, Washington at first took him slowly, put him on his staff. After Brandywine and being wounded and you know coming back from war, that put him up in stature. And also, Lafayette always had Washington's back. Not everybody was enamored with Washington as, as a general. 
uh, we know about the Conway cabal and General Gates trying to you know, upset him, and Lafayette defended him every point of the way. And as Lafayette gained some uh, military experience, because when he came to America, even though he was in the French army, he had never fought in a battle. So, you know, he was kind of learning on the field and he, he got better and more proficient. And, you know, it, it culminated with the, when he was sent to Virginia and kept Conway at bay and finally uh, cornered Con- uh, yeah, Conway Cornwall at um, Yorktown. And when Cornwall surrendered, you know, the world turned upside down. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lafayette was, you know, responsible, partly responsible for pinning in the British general and keeping mm-hmm. him there until uh, Washington and Rochambeau and de Grassi, you know, got there with the American French Army and, and the French Navy. So and when you mentioned, he, he kind of earned that. Yes. Sorry to interrupt you. When you mentioned that he had Washington's back, when Congress wanted to invade Canada again and, and Lafayette, <laughs> share that story because. Oh, that's great. It just kind of shows uh, during the winter of uh, Valley Forge, uh, Lafayette had went to Bethlehem and his wound healed somewhat. He actually came back a little bit early, but he was with Washington at Valley Forge. And the Congress had uh, created this war board, which was Gates and Conway, basically. They uh, taught Congress and let them decide what the troop movements would be and what the invasions and tactics and they wanted to ask Washington, and they thought, well, you know, this young kid Lafayette is starting to gain a lot of stature and, and respect. And if we can cut down Lafayette, that would hurt Washington. And they said, well, he's a Frenchman, and the France just lost Canada. I bet you he jumped at a chance to invade Canada. So let's send him up to invade Canada and gave him the orders. And Lafayette didn't want to do it at first. Washington said, you're an officer in the American Army. you got to follow orders. But you're allowed to ask them what kind of resources you're going to have. And Lafayette did that. And they said, we're going to have lots of troops and money for you once you reach New York State for the invasion. Uh, Washington knew this was an issue. Lafayette knew it wasn't. Lafayette then went to some members of Congress, which he had already met, and said, not my idea. It sounds like their idea. By this point, it was a little better footing with his father-in-law back in France, told him, word got to the king that, you know, they were misusing Lafayette or about to. And when Lafayette got to the middle of New York State, he looked around and there was no extra troops, there was no money, and everybody up there was saying, you're nuts, you're not going to invade Canada. You know, in January of 1778, it's a harsh winter, there's not enough people here. And Lafayette complained and the war board rescinded the orders and Lafayette wrote everybody and said, see, I told you so. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it improved his stature and Washington's stature, and that pretty much ended you know, the Conway Cabal there. <laughs> and Bruce, but, and again, it's amazing for a 20-year-old to do that. It's just, again, incredible. We're talking about a 20-year-old kid yes. <laughs> being able to do this. So we are, unfortunately, Bruce, up against time. Would you share with our listeners, please, where they could go to purchase all of your books with listeners, please? I highly recommend all of Bruce's books. And you speak a lot in the area. Where could they go to find your itinerary? Because you are a very busy man. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a really busy year. COVID killed me when I couldn't get out and talk. And so I'm making up for it now. Please, um, if anybody wants books and sign copies, you can first go to my website. We'll list them all. It has my background and also has my speaking engagements up there. And the website is www.malday.com. And that's M-O-W-D-A-Y, my last name. And uh, please email me if you want any. I'll get special deals or range. I'll get copies and people with inscriptions. 
And my email is Malday, M-O-W-D-A-Y, at M-O-W-D-A-Y dot com. Be glad to talk with anybody and order books and get signs once to them. And Arch, this has been just such a pleasure. You're right. The, the 25 minutes go way too quickly. <laughs> well, we're not. I think, Bruce, if you can, we're going to do another show if you're able to do that. We can continue our conversations. But listeners, please, you need to read all of Bruce's books. And oftentimes he gives lectures in our area. We all need to hear these lectures. There was so much there that Bruce is able to give to us to help us with our American history. So, Bruce, thank you for coming and sharing and all of your passion for American history and everything that you are doing to help continue to educate us all with American history. Thank you so much. And yes, let's schedule another session. That would be great. Okay, be great. Thank you. This is 1180, you. 1180 AM WFYL, Working for Your Liberty.